before we get into the... That's my dog, by the way. I hear. Would you like to just do a full-on Final Fantasy XV spoiler stream, or is that just going to be like a thing we talk about? I feel like I could talk about Final Fantasy XV for as long as somebody will listen to me talk about it. Why don't we do that then? Why don't we just say this is the Final Fantasy XV stream, so if people have not played it or don't want to be spoiled on it or just don't care, just skip this episode. Don't worry, you're not going to miss anything else. If we talk about something else, we'll splice into a different episode. All right, so I guess that serves as your spoiler warning if you have not completed 15 yet. And I'll take it one step further and just say spoiler warning for Final Fantasy, because I will almost certainly make comparisons between this and 13. Yes. Because that's kind of the most obvious comparisons, because it was at one point a Final Fantasy 13 game. So why don't we just start from the top? I finished Final Fantasy 15 for the first time within the last couple of weeks. Yes. Um, I played it for the first time on the Windows version. So I think I had a different experience than you did because you played it at launch. And from what I understand, it is a somewhat different game now. The very last chapter is very, very different in the Windows version than it was at launch. Well, I think the last two chapters are different, but the last chapter has a lot more plot content. Chapter 13, apparently, they just made a lot easier. Well, chapter 13, originally you went in and Noctis got separated from the boyos got all his weapons locked and he had to use the ring of the lucii to go through this whole like kind of stealthish dungeon right so they did two things one they gave you the option to play as the other two bros which i did just to see what it was all about i went about halfway through nox portion of it and then they give you the option at save points to switch so i was like i'm just gonna switch over and see what the other guys are up to not realizing that locked me into gladio and ignis for the next you know hour um, but I think it was worth playing both. I kind of wish it was a little bit more seamless to play both sides of the coin now. Yeah, Gladio's scenario originally was not in the game. And that's a big deal because Gladio's scenario is much, much easier and much, much shorter. Right, but it also gives you some stuff that I don't think you get in the original version. I'm trying to remember how it splits up now, but I think that you see the former emperor in a different way. So it's a lot more obvious, like, oh, this is, you know, that guy is a demon now. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Noctis, it's just kind of like this thing's chasing you all of a sudden, and you don't really know why. (laughs) The other thing they did is they made it less survival horror and more, oh my god, this ring just makes everything explode. Like, it is way easier. Having played through Noctis's, because you're talking about Noctis's scenario with the ring. Noctis's scenario in 13. Having played both, I didn't really notice a difference going back and playing it in the Windows version. And I couldn't tell you what has been changed or rebalanced with the ring, because the ring was always that powerful. My understanding is they changed the amount of MP it consumes, because I think in the original version, you could kill a thing pretty easily. But then you were kind of helpless. Like you would almost always go into stasis or just not have enough to wipe out something else. In the Windows version, you can take out a couple of dudes with the ring before having to worry. Okay. I believe that's, from what I read, the difference. Um, so overall, I really love Final Fantasy XV. Yeah, me too. Big fan. That being said, unlike most Final Fantasy games... I don't feel like I ever really understood the combat system. I just sort of winged it the entire time and got really overleveled exploring in the the open world portion. I mean, I didn't have any struggles really with the game, but at the same time, don't really feel like I got it. 
I'm going to draw a comparison between Final Fantasy 15 and Final Fantasy 5 in that regard. So Final Fantasy 5, nobody completes that game for the first time understanding its mechanics and systems. Because it has 20 jobs. Right. And when you play the game for the first time, you find five, maybe six jobs that you like, a couple combinations that you like, and just play the whole game with those. And that's how I went through 15. I found weapon types that I enjoyed. I found bro techs that I liked. And once I kind of got into a good play style, got a good rhythm going, you could just kind of play the entire game just with a very small portion of what the game gives you. I had the same experience, almost the exact same experience. And I couldn't tell if that was me finding my niche, because typically when I play a game that has, for example, lots of different weapon types, I usually find what works for me, which is usually the medium to light stuff. So I stuck with knives, the one-handed swords, and to a lesser degree, spears. And everything else I just kind of ignored. I never put a gun on Noctis, even though I could. I never really used the machinery. Like, that's pretty much all I used. And then as far as magic went, I just made the strongest magic I could make at any given time and used them as F-off grenades. Because I don't know if this is something they just give you for the Windows version or if this was something you could find in the original. But I started the game with ignore splash damage from grenade item so i just used that the entire game yeah they definitely added that for the windows version but the splash damage ends up not mattering much even in the vanilla game what you don't do is you don't give your magic to your bros because i never gave magic to my bros not once (laughs) i stuck to primarily great swords and spears i really liked but also the armager weapons that you can unlock there are several that are really good Uh, The Sword of the Father, I really like. And then there's a crossbow that has some kind of situational use. In the launch version, you could chain together crossbow hits and get just like 10,000s and thousands of damage. Extraordinarily easy. And then they patched that, so you couldn't do that anymore. So this is just me as a gamer. If you give me a thing and it's like, this is really strong, but it'll slowly kill you. I'm just like, ant nerds to that. Because I'm <laughs> the first time I tried to use an armager weapon, I just drained the hell out of my life. And then was a sitting duck because I wasn't real good at remembering to warp around and use the warp points to regain your health. Like I was having a real trouble for the first maybe two-thirds of the game getting the flow of battle. So what I did is there was one armager weapon, the shield. You put it on you, and it just raises your defense and your HP. You don't have to ever use it. So I stuck that in my left-hand slot and never touched it. I was like, okay, I have three weapon slots now because I have a shield over there. And generally speaking, down was just whatever magic I happened to have on, uh, unless I needed a specific element. And up was generally a spear or knife, and right was my sword. And that's pretty much what I stuck to the entire game. I don't mind the health drain for the armor weapons because I learned... Partway through the the game, that damage and healing don't work like typical JRPGs. Falling to zero health doesn't kill you, and in that state, you can open your item menu for free and use as many items as you want for free. Once I did that, I just started stockpiling high potions and elixirs and spamming the armor weapon attacks constantly. So there's one critical aspect of the battle system that I never understood. When I first started playing the game, the way that the system and the tutorial seemed to explain it to you was, this is your HP. When it goes to zero, your maximum HP starts draining. And then you can heal that later. If that goes to zero, then you're just game over. Which made it effectively pretty hard to get a game over without just saying, F it, I'm out of this battle. But then I kept getting to points where my maximum HP was dropping, and I had no idea why. Because I wasn't going to zero health. Something was clipping away my maximum HP, and I couldn't figure out what it was. 
there was an effect in, I think it was only in 13.2 that would reduce your maximum HP. That was a real pain in the butt. And I kept feeling I was getting hit by that. And I couldn't figure out why my max HP was dropping in the middle of battle when I wasn't on the ground. I don't know. Maybe I'm just dumb. I was not very good at that battle system. Battle systems are like half of why I play Final Fantasy games. In fact, it's funny you made a reference to Final Fantasy V earlier, because I'm one of those people who doesn't like Final Fantasy V because it is so system heavy. And I'm not a big systems guy. I've never got super into 12. I've only played three once. Eight, I've never finished either, Like, because it's a very system heavy game. So I like that the systems in this game, I didn't get them, but I didn't care because they didn't matter a whole lot. What really mattered was exploring and just hanging with my bros. And I think that this game had one of the best, I won't say the best story, but one of the best narratives, if that makes sense. Separating the literal plot point to plot point story from the meta narrative, like what I experienced with the game, with my guys. It really does draw you in and like you're on the trip with the boys. And there's a lot of little ways that it does that. Yeah, there's so many things. I alluded to it in the last podcast where you get to the point where, and since we're on the spoiler cast, I can say what it was now without beating around the bush. When Luna dies, Ignis gets blinded and just nobody's happy. (laughs) And then you're going through this next scene and Ignis refuses to stay on the sidelines. So you have to wait for him while he's like gimping along, you know, with his uh, walking stick and nobody's happy. Prompto is just joyless, which just depressed the hell out of me. Noctis is being kind of a turd monkey, but it's understandable because his girlfriend, fiance, whatever, just died. Gladio is pissed at everything. And and that wouldn't work in a game where you didn't care so much about the characters. Like They did such a good job of making you love these guys with just so much incidental banter and the way that you go to the campsites and hang out. They give you half of a game to just explore and then they put you on, as we dubbed it, the plot railroad. It's a literal suddenly, railroad. It's an actual train you get on that takes you from the, through the rest of the plot points in the game. Which is brilliant. Which is like... I don't know that it's brilliant, but... It's hilarious. We'll, How about that? We'll come back around to that. Well, I think it really works. Because one of, one of the things I was saying is the game really does feel like two different games stapled together. Um, I think that the reason the back half of the game works so well is because they give you so much freedom in the front half of the game. It's What it really is, is it's Final Fantasy VI inverted. Yeah, you know what? That's that's a really good way to think about it if you're thinking about it in terms of Final Fantasy. Right, and, and well, in just terms of, of game structure. I wasn't able to engage with a lot of Final Fantasy VI's game mechanics the first time I played it. There was a lot of stuff that we ignored because we didn't get it or... It seemed too complicated or it didn't seem useful or whatever the case may be. So I think that only engaging with part of the systems and using them to get you through the entire game is kind of a Final Fantasy tradition in a way. It is. There's some games that are more critical than others. I think that's part of the reason why I never finished Final Fantasy 8 or 12 for that matter, which is funny because 12, now that I know it a little bit better just from watching other people play, it doesn't seem like it's that complicated. We're going to have to do a Zodiac Age spoiler podcast down the road. <laughs> well, I'm planning on getting that for the Switch because I think now that I'm... Are. Of course, yes. Well, I mean, it's this isn't me Switch fanboying. This is me, like, we've talked about it. I'm a father now, mm-hmm. like, sitting on the couch and playing video games while my kids, you know, watching PBS or whatever is just the way I get most of my gameplay in. I think I speak for everybody when I say when you do get the Zodiac Age and play through it, you need to let your son watch you play it enough so that he can make us a crayon drawing of Fran the Bunny Girl. 
before we get into the plot of 15, mechanically, uh, I was actually surprised that you enjoyed the end of the game because they put something in the Windows edition. They changed the way the game ends. Originally, there's the 10-year time jump. Noctis comes back with his stubble. The guys go to Insomnia, and Insomnia is just this kind of smallish dungeon area. And what they did is they expanded Insomnia to be enormous in the Windows edition. So none of that was there in the original one. You just walked up to the Citadel before. Right, none of that was there. And they added the final boss gauntlet, where you have to fight several tiers of final bosses, where the game makes you play as the bros. One for Gladio, one for Prompto, and one for Ignis. And I know how you feel about a game suddenly changing its mechanics at the 11th hour. So here's the thing. That would have really bothered me if they made it difficult. If they made it a thing where suddenly I need to be an expert Gladio player at the 11th hour, I would have been like, get the F out of here. (laughs) I know now that those are based just on how they play in their individual episodes. The part I didn't like was... I'm in a big fight and suddenly it's like pages of tutorial that I'm never going to remember. Right. But that I was like, that's lame. Don't do that. <laughs> they could have just said, now you're playing as Gladio, mash X. And I would have been like, fine. What I liked about it was it was easy and it really adds to the plot. And I feel like if you played the original version, it seems like that ending would have been very abrupt, which it sounds like from reading online, it was for a lot of people. And I think that giving each of the brothers a chance to, I'm just calling them brothers because that's what they kind of call them all the time. They all take a turn as being Noctis's shield, effectively. Gladio literally is called the shield. The original game, I say the original game, it's the same game. At launch, you still had the encounter with Ifrit that kind of has all of that compartmentalized into it. You have the bros helping Noctis on his feet so they can stand against Ifrit. So there wasn't anything missing per se. It's just that they managed to add something really good on top of what was already there. Well, they also apparently added the last scene with Ghost Luna Freya, which was really powerful too. I like that she comes in and prays and brings in all of the gods. You have this like moment where her and Noctis are looking at each other and they're like, you know, there's a thousand things they want to say, but all she says is, you're my king, or something like that. And he's like, thank you. And then she disappears, and it's like, sad, and I want to cry. <laughs> the gods are a good place to start, because we're going to talk about Final Fantasy XV as kind of a standalone plot. But whenever I play a game in a long-running series like this, I'm always looking at it as part of the greater whole in the series. Like, what does fifteen do with the Final Fantasy mythology as a whole? And the first thing that it does is it really makes the gods important. And by gods, I'm talking about the summoned monsters, the Eidolons, the Aeons, or Espers, or whatever you want to call them. Usually in a Final Fantasy game, these creatures are just incidental. Sometimes they are shown as characters, but only background characters. Like, Six is really good about that. Like, you actually get to speak with Rama a little bit. There's side quests involved with a couple of the other Espers, but there's not a lot of story there. The Espers as a whole are a story in Six, but yeah. On the individual level, there's nothing there except Ifrit and Shiva kill themselves and you get their Magisite. And that's pretty much how all the other Espers work as well. Right. Ten has the situation where you have to kind of Pokemon collect them all. (laughs) But again, they're not characters. You go to the place and get Ifrit because that's where he lives, but then he's just on your status screen for the rest of the game. Right. Fifteen, your espers are the gods of the world, and they have such a presence to them. The first one you actually encounter is Titan, 
and it's an enormous encounter. It blurs the line between is this a dungeon or is this a boss fight? Because it's kind of both. It's this huge set piece. Titan is larger than life. He's in the bottom of this massive crater. I mean, it's an Atlas, you yeah, know, God exactly. Atlas uh, reference for sure. He's holding up a meteor, I think, is what he's holding mm-hmm. up. Uh, and then later when you're on the plot railroad, you're going by the Glacian's corpse and you look out over this snowy desert your first glance, you're just thinking you're looking at landscape, and then you realize there's, like, the shape of a woman laying out there that's massive. And these gods have such a presence in the world. They really do feel like gods. They did something very special with those summoned monsters that hadn't been done in the series up to that point. I think part of what made it effective, first of all, there was very few of them. Like, Final Fantasy VI, part of the thing is you get, what, like, 20, 25 espers? Mm-hmm. They're treated more as a powerful animal creatures rather than gods. And I think having so few of them and having their mythology, the mythology between Afrit and, and Shiva, which I don't remember if that's stuff you have to read or if it's something I sought out, but I remember hearing about the story, like their love story and about how like Afrit basically hated men and that Shiva loved men and cooled his fires and yada, yada, yada. Like, I mean, there's a whole lot going on there. It's very Greek mythology, but they rip it off quite effectively and well. <laughs> So Ifrit, you never gain control over. Ifrit is one of the final bosses in the game. And you actually never gain control over any of these creatures. To summon one of these creatures in the game, you have to meet certain thresholds during battle. Like for some of them, you have to have X amount of people dead or be below a certain HP threshold, be within this certain area on the map. And then you'll get a button prompt on screen, which you push, and then it summons the monster in. Yeah, you basically have to be getting your butt kicked spectacularly, but still being alive. So it really doesn't, it doesn't feel like, like in every other Final Fantasy game, you summon these monsters to do your bidding. It feels like they're watching after you. It really does feel like divine intervention, like literally in the game. It feels like every time I got that prompt, I kind of knew like, I better push this button because the game's telling me I'm not going to win this battle unless I do. Uh, You never gain the ability to summon Ifrit. You can summon Bahamut once as part of a story event, but then never again. So you're limited to Shiva, Titan, Rama, and ostensibly you could summon Leviathan, but I've never seen it happen in gameplay because apparently it only happens along beaches and coasts. Right. Well, and then I think, I don't know if this was DLC or Windows Edition or how it works, but I got the Wind God too, which is funny because the Wind God cops opt constantly after that. Wait, which one? It might be a Windows edition only one. It's, uh, hold on, I forget its name. Okay, so Google says, apparently, you can summon Garuda. Is that the big, no, Garuda's the big turtle thing. No, Garuda's the big winged bird thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. And they added it, it's it Garuda. as a crossover with Final Fantasy fourteen. okay. Oh, okay, so I got that. And once you get Garuda, for whatever reason, in the uh, final chapter, Garuda pops up constantly. Hmm. I don't know what the condition is for Garuda summoning, but it's just like Garuda... All day. <laughs> I think I saw Titan one time. I saw Rama a lot. But then once I got Garuda, that's like all I ever saw. Either I wasn't paying attention or the game doesn't cue this very well. And I'm not sure which one it is. I feel like I got the chapter whatever. And all of a sudden they were like, now go get gods. And I get that part of that was... What's her name? The messenger god who turns out to be Shiva later on, but you don't know it at this point. The messenger goddess comes and basically says, go seek out Titan. Is that really all the game gives you? Because I really remember feeling like it was abrupt. Uh, it's not Gentiana that 
brings you to seek out Titan is Arden. Oh, that's right. Because you have Arden gets in his car and he says, "Hey, follow me," and you've got to follow him up the road. And right, okay, no, I'm remembering it now. You got to remember, I played this game over a course of a couple of months. <laughs> Arden twists your arm into going to go get Titan. Yes. And that starts the chain of events where you lose your car. Then Gintiana tells you that Luna spoke to Rama, so you've got to go to Rama now. Is that how it works? Yes, and that's Luna Freya's job as the Oracle. She's supposed to make an accord with these astrals to give the king their power. Which is kind of a Yuna throwback in a way. How so? Yuna had made the, she was a summoner. She had went on her pilgrimage to go get the powers from all the things to go fight Sin. Mechanically, it's kind of the same thing, but it's, to me, it's, it's a very different element in the plot. Maybe it was just me because I had been spending so much time exploring that all of a sudden they were like, now gods. And I was like, oh, wait, what? And this is one of the big criticisms that people make of Final Fantasy XV. And I go back and forth with whether I think it's valid or not a lot of people played this game and then when they finished playing it they said i have no idea what happened to me that didn't make sense because i think 15 has probably the most straightforward plot a final fantasy game has had since i don't know when the basic plot is very straightforward you know you got two factions that are at war and then you've got arden who's pulling the strings from behind you know everything I think where I have issues is with some of the details, and I think some of those details got lost in two ways. I think one was my personal narrative, the way that I played the game. So where I didn't pick up on what Arden was doing at first, like, oh, going to Titan, and then I'm doing this because of Unifreya. When it became Yuna's going to the gods, now I have to go to the gods, that didn't click right away for me. And I think that's partly because of the way I was playing the game, you know, the way that I was exploring and doing my own thing and then coming back to the plot. I'm not sure that that's true because I had kind of the same experience. Okay. The first time I played the game, I wasn't really sure what I was doing or why. I think the reason for that, though, is that 15 is very light on just exposition. Right. They don't come right out and say, this is the backstory of the world. This is the job of the king. This is the job of the oracle. This is why they have to be married. This is the role of the gods in this relationship. They don't come right out and explain all of that. And I think that you get a lot of the world building through the gameplay. I think the only way that you find out about some of the features of the land is by doing a side quest that's completely optional where the guy's like, go take a picture of this thing and you go take a picture of it. And then through it, you learn, oh, this valley was actually created by blah, 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 gods fighting, you know, that kind of thing. So that's one part of what I had issue with. That is a problem. If you're playing a game and you're not getting the motivations, if they don't click... But I think I would rather have that problem than the more common JRPG problem of here's an hour of exposition and then a 30-minute dungeon and then an hour of more exposition. I'm not saying I didn't get it. I'm saying it was slow for me to click. Mm -hmm. I was halfway through chasing down gods before I kind of realized, oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm following in Luna's footsteps because of this. Right, me me too. I think that's a very common way to connect with the game. I feel like that's deliberate. I feel like the game is holding back the plot a little bit on purpose. Well, okay, let's let's look at this from Noctis's point of view. Lunafrey is his best friend. When they were children, they had a very strong connection. He's a little perturbed about marrying her, I think. It's this forced marriage, and he knows that he loves her, but maybe not in that way, but it's for the good of the country, and 
when Noctis sets out on this journey, he's not all in. So maybe you're right and it could be deliberate because Noctis isn't all in and the player doesn't have that connection yet. It's just kind of waking up to how important everything is 30 hours into the game around the same time Noctis starts taking it all seriously. And I think that on some level that works. I think that really works. And I'm... (sighs) I don't want to sound like I'm saying the game is bad because of this. I'm just saying this was my experience with the narrative. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it was mine too. Because, well, when I first started playing Final Fantasy XV, I had no idea if the story was going to be good. You can never tell going into a Final Fantasy game. (laughs) That's true. I was probably on the plot railroad before I realized this is a really heavy experience. Like This is going to stick with me when I'm done with it. The part I did have a more fundamental problem with is I don't know if they were cut for time and then they were put out as DLC later to fill in the blanks or if they were always planned as DLC. I suspect the former because there's points where all of a sudden Gladio just goes and he doesn't explain why. He just like, I got to go. And then later you get a boring DLC, which I will get into. That explains it. And then there's another point where something terrible happens to Ignis and you don't know what. And that is fine, honestly. The way that that played out in the original plot was 100% fine. But then, at the, like, 11th hour, you're in, like, the enemy base, and suddenly Prompto's like, yo, I got the key card in my wrist because I'm this Magitek thing. I hope you guys still love me. And I'm like, what the... Where did that come from? I was convinced I just missed something. That was a very undeveloped plot thread, yes. And then you play the DLC where it explains it and explains it pretty well. But at the same time, like the first time I played it, I was like, okay, I don't think that one's on me. I think that one's on the game. They spend the entire game setting up Prompto's inferiority complex where he's not royalty. He's not in the Royal Guard. He's just buds with Noctis. And he's always felt like, I shouldn't be buds with Noctis. And you come to find out he was this little fat kid. And I don't even know if that's explained in the game proper. I know I watched the anime where they talk about that. That's the thing. There's like 18 different plot sources for this game. <laughs> okay. So let, let me, let's touch on that real quick. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, the only plot source of 15 that matters is the game proper. There is a greater universe of 15 that includes the Kingsglaive movie and the anime and all of the bro episodes and... Gods know what else, but what really matters is just the plot of the game. Does it connect properly? Does it follow logically? And I think it mostly does, except for... Except for Prompto, mostly. <laughs> those two things you mentioned. Gladio yeah. leaving and not explaining where he's going, and Prompto at the 11th hour saying, oh, I'm, a, I'm a clone, I'm Solid Snake, guys, sorry. <laughs> Those are definitely flaws in the plot, and the fact that they connect them up in the DLC makes the overall universe a little more cohesive, but doesn't actually improve the problems in the core story. And it makes me suspect that they wanted it to be in the original game, but either couldn't get it for time or couldn't make it work. They didn't want to have character switching being a core part of the game. That being said, I really do love the plot of the game, and it struck me how old school storytelling was. It's a very Shakespearean story. The the king being taken out and then having to regain his throne and then making a noble sacrifice and all this stuff just felt very, very dark for a Final Fantasy game. So just for the benefit of people listening, because there are going to be people listening who have not played 15 and are never going to. 
let's just summarize the plot of the game real quick. Noctis is betrothed to Lunafreya, and he is the crown prince of Insomnia. Uh, his father, King Regis, sends Noctis and his bros out in the family royal car. They're going to drive to get on a boat to go to a neighboring nation of Altitia, which is kind of neutral territory between Noctis's kingdom and the Niflheim Empire. Yeah, Altitia is effectively a city-state. And in, in fact, it's kind of Rome. It's kind of like Rome and Venice rolled into one. It's very Venice. Very much Venice. You drive out to the place, and you can't get on the boat. There's some reason you're not allowed to get on the boat. You hear that your hometown of Insomnia, while you're gone, has been attacked by Niflheim. You drive back to the border, and the whole place is destroyed. You start hearing reports that King Regis is dead, and Lunafreya is dead, and everything is terrible. And he meets up with one of the Kingsglaive, which are like the, the sworn shields to the king. His name is Kor. Mm -hmm. And Kor is like, oh yeah, no, Insomnia is gone, the king's dead. What we need to do now is awaken your power as the king. You're the last hope for Insomnia, and to do that, I need you to collect this whole list of ghost weapons. So he gives you a shopping list, and then he... He buggers off somewhere. Yeah, critically, the royal family of Insomnia has some sort of magic powers, basically, where they can call on the strength of their ancestors and eliminate evil. You eventually meet the, I guess he's the vizier of Niflheim, a man named Arden. What I really like about Arden is he's clearly up to no good, and none of the bros trust him. Nobody trusts him, but at the same time, they're willing to be led by the nose because he's promising to help them. And they're like, we don't trust you, but we're going to let you take us to the thing that we need to do. It's very much Lucifer is extending the apple. That's how it's treated. So Noctis needs to marry Lunafreya because Noctis is the king. And in this world, the king is essentially a source of magic. There's power in Noctis's blood that does not exist anywhere else. Lunafreya is the oracle. She's a religious icon. She's a healer. In this game, there's no healing magic. It's implied that Lunafreya has healing magic because she's an oracle, but Noctis and Lunafreya coming together in a union in marriage is going to solidify Insomnia's peace and security. That's the idea. To do this, Lunafreya needs to make an accordance with the gods. And when she does this, Noctis then has to go to that god and receive the god's power. The first of these is Titan. The guys can't get anywhere close to Titan. It's on lockdown. And Arden's like, ah, but I'll take you there. The game presents itself as it's an open world, but there's lots of blockades that are controlled by the Empire. And one of them is blocking the way to Titan. And that's what Arden offers you as an olive branch in a way or an apple, <laughs> is I can get you to Titan if you play ball with me. So he does that, and then something, something, you also have in accordance with Rama. And in there, you're running quests, like, oh, I know where one of these ghost weapons is, let's go get that. And you do this for about 40 hours. Eventually, you hear from Sid, who is another one of, I don't know if he has an official title or not, but he's one of the king's friends. It's implied at some point that Sid and the king actually had a falling out. I think that they were supposed to have gone on a pilgrimage similar to what you're doing, but under much different political circumstances. But then they had a falling out, which is why he lives outside of Insomnia at the Hammerhead. Sid's like, okay, we have a boat. We're going to put you on a boat. We're going to get you to Altitia. So you get on the boat, you sail to Altitia, which is the city state, which is neither Insomnia nor Niflheim. Actually, I think it is technically a part of Niflheim, but it is 
It's technically in Niflheim territory, but they are granted autonomy. Yeah, they're, they're self-governing. And it's actually kind of interesting because they know they have a god sleeping in the ocean underneath their island. And you have to go in and negotiate politically with the Grand Speaker of Altitia in order for her to allow you to make this accordance, <laughs> which she knows is going to cause a great destruction. I kept having flashbacks to the banquet scene in Final Fantasy VI. I had a little bit of that too, and I was really wondering, like, I only played it the one time, and I'm not sure how well I did. I got what I needed. Do you just get different items depending on how you negotiate that? I don't know. I'm not really oh, sure. It's, yeah, it's, it's like the banquet scene in that regard. You can't fail it. Mm-hmm. It's just the better you do, the better rewards you get. But even the best rewards are like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So you negotiate this situation. They're going to summon Leviathan, and they currently have Luna Freya, and they're holding her there. Uh, her brother is Ravis, and Ravis is also here. And everything goes to hell, because Niflheim attacks, while Leviathan's out, there's all this destruction, the bros get separated, Arden is also there, and he kills Luna Freya with a knife. Yeah, and that was such an interesting scene, because you knew Arden was up to no good, but you always figured it was some political intrigue type stuff, and then he just up and stabs Luna Freya through the gut, so she dies slowly, which is not a fun way to go. Uh, and she uses the last of her power effectively to save Noctis's life. She is a noble sacrifice girl. I do feel a little bad as a male feminist, the way that the top female character in this is treated. She got kind of shafted. What are you talking about? Aranea didn't get shafted. Oh, Aranea is great. I'm mad I don't get to play as Aranea any- anymore. I'm not going to bring up Aranea in the plot summary. She's not that important. So Lunafrey is killed, and then there's a there's like a six weeks later or whatever, and the guys head towards the mainland of Niflheim, and they're heading towards the capital city on a train that goes from the coast through the empire to the capital city. At this point, there's no more open world. If you hit the map button, you get this giant map, but all you can do is ride on the railroad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's all you <laughs> Arden shows up along the train ride, and there's some more shenanigans, which are actually one of my favorite story moments in the game. So Arden shows up, and you're like, you son of a... And you chase him through the train. And Arden's like, are you trying to kill me, dude? And acting kind of weird, honestly. And you finally think you got Arden, and he slips away. And something, something, you end up on the roof, and you see Arden is pointing his gun at Prompto. Critically, Arden does not use a gun ever in the game, but you see Arden is pointing one of Prompto's guns at him, and you just figure he took it from Prompto. You rush in, and as you swing at him, he turns into Prompto and goes flying off the train. And you realize you've been hosed the whole time. The whole scene, Arden is using an illusion to make him and Prompto look like each other. I realized immediately that Prompto and Arden were switched at the end. I didn't realize till later. I was thinking about it much later and I was like, oh, dude, that's why when you're chasing Arden, he's like saying things like, are you really trying to kill me? What's wrong with you, dude? Arden would never use the word dude for one thing. That's why I thought it was so funny. And then I realized later, oh, my God, that was Prompto that you're chasing through the train trying to stab. So Arden's being a real douche this whole time. And you eventually end up at a place called Tenebrae, which is a city where Lunafreya is from. It's a city of great healers. When Noctis was very young, he was injured, and he went there to convalesce for a while. That's where he and Luna met each other, and they became pen pals as kids. At Tenebrae, the sun stops rising. There's no more daylight from that point on. It's an eternal world of night. And in this world, when it's dark, demons come up out of the ground. 
and it's a pretty, it's a trope. It's a video game trope. Everything's more dangerous at night, but it's really tied into the plot of this game more so than others. When you very first start playing the game, for the first, like, I don't know, 10 hours of the game, Ignis does all the driving, and Ignis basically will not drive at night. He says, we're going to shelter. And then you eventually get to a point where he hands over the keys to Noctis and says, hey, bud, you want to drive? And then you can drive at night, but you can still get crushed by these monsters. And you arrive at the Imperial capital, and the car gets wrecked, and the bros get separated, and this is where you get to choose which scenario you want to play through. Either scenario you play through, the goal is to get into where the Emperor is keeping the crystal, which is the source of magic. It has a strong connection to Noctis and his bloodline. Going in, Noctis thinks, when I get to this crystal, I'm going to be able to take its power, I'm going to be able to defeat Arden, I'm going to be able to banish the knight. That's the idea. You reach out, he touches this crystal, and it grabs him, and it starts absorbing him. And there's this excellent scene where Arden marches in, and it was his plan all along, and you've been dancing to his music. So this is the point where you see Arden in his true form for the first time. He drops the illusion while he's taunting you, and you see that he's kind of this gets like almost zombified, sort of demonic kind of look to his face. And that's the point that I realized... Oh, I'm fighting Kefka. <laughs> uh, he's not technically Kefka, but he is. He's not Kefka, but he has that kind of nuance to him. He's kind of got that nihilistic. He's Kefka with a better plan. He's Kefka, but not insane. Right. He's he is in the pantheon of great Final Fantasy arch bosses. Arden kind of explains why he's mad. He is a lot of Final Fantasy villains rolled into one. His motivations, his demeanor. The idea is, time immemorial, ages and ages and ages ago, Arden was the head of Noctis's house. He was supposed to be the king. But at the time, the jobs of the king and the oracle had not yet been split. Arden was both. And Arden's job at the time, the big darkness in the world, wasn't demons coming up from the ground. It was something called the Star Scourge which is an illness that can infect people and turn them into demons. And the way you heal this is to take the demonic possession into yourself. It's implied that Luna Freya goes around doing this same thing, and if Arden hadn't stabbed her, she would have eventually been killed by this. She was tragic, marked for death from the beginning. Arden thought at that time that he was going to heal the people of their wounds and take the Star Scourge into himself, and then the crystal would choose him to be the king, and then he could reign benevolently but that didn't happen because the crystal was like hey you're filled with demons we're gonna go with your brother izunia and you're out so that gives him a kind of zandy aspect if you recall zandy from final fantasy 3 he was god's bro and god's like ah, i got three students and i'm gonna give you dominion over dreams and you dominion over time and i'm gonna give you mortality have fun nerd <laughs> Yeah, Arden is, he, I would call him a sympathetic villain because he is a total bastard, but he is at least, you kind of get why he's twisted. <laughs> Arden, he's tied to the Lucis bloodline and to the crystal, but he can't destroy the crystal because the crystal hasn't yet chosen a new protector. He has to wait until the crystal makes this choice and then in destroying that protector, Arden can himself die. He's just over it. He wants to exit stage right. And this is the only way he can do it. Okay, stop for a second. Because I don't think I got that. I don't think I got his death drive. I mean, it was kind of there under the surface. But I always thought his motivation was more simple revenge on the house of Lucius. He pulls the strings to get these two factions fighting to the point that they basically destroy each other. 
Niflheim destroys Insomnia. Then Niflheim implodes because of all the strings he's been pulling to get them to use demons and stuff. And then Noctis gets pulled into the crystal. And then it's Eternal Night and Arden sits on the throne. Is that just the stopgap to, and then you come kill me? There's a couple ways you could look at it if you're looking at it in the lenses of Final Fantasy villains. Because in one way, you are looking at it in terms of Kefka. He has to wait for Noctis to come to him, and it's a 10-year wait. That's what happens next in the story. There's a 10-year time jump. And in 10 years, what's he going to do? Take over the world. I mean, why not? I'm already here. I'm the demon king of the universe. But the other way I, I look at it is... To take revenge on the bloodline of Lucis, that's no small thing, because that bloodline is the literal source of magic in this world. So taking revenge on the bloodline of Lucis is effectively taking revenge on the entire world. Right, oh yeah, I mean, he brings darkness to the whole world. So there is a ten-year time jump, and then Noctis wakes back up. He has this conversation with Bob. He looks like Keanu Reeves now. I dig the beard. (laughs) He hooks back up with the bros. The bros are like, all right, we know Arden is in insomnia. There's nothing left to do but go there. And when we destroy him, the sun will rise again. And that's effectively what happens. They go there. There's a battle with the final astral Ifrit. They go up into the palace. You skipped one major thing, which is when Anoctus is pulled into the crystal, he has this long conversation with Bahamut. And Bahamut basically says... In order to unleash the power of the crystal to bring day, you have to sacrifice yourself. That kind of goes without saying, I thought. But no, you're right. I mean, it was kind of a major thing. I don't think it was ever so implicit that Noctis is on a death journey until that moment where he talks to Bahamut. I thought that that was actually a real critical point. And that's a key difference between his pilgrimage and Yuna's intent. Because Yuna sets out on her pilgrimage knowing that she dies at the end. Right. Noctis, when he sets out on his journey, he doesn't have that as an endpoint. His job is to marry Lunafreya and reign as king. It's not until he gets there and Bahamut tells him about what this crystal is for and what you're going to have to do that he finally accepts this role. And he tells his bros, basically, what's going to happen. He tells them in an after-credits flashback scene that might be the most gut-punch video game ending. Uh, It really was. Like, But anyways, we'll get there. Yeah, you go to the palace, and the only Final Fantasy game I can think of where you don't fight the final boss with your full party. Um, yes and no. Because technically, you do fight a form of Sephiroth with just Cloud, but it's mostly an interactive cutscene. Yeah. And so let me draw these parallels real quick. When I say the final boss, I mean fighting Arden out in Insomnia. That's the final boss. Right. I mean, that really is the final boss. There's such good restraint in this fight. I really love the restraint. So you're, you're Dragon Ball Z flying all over the place because you and Arden both have this magical bloodline. You have all this infinite power. But you're not fighting in, like, this outer space nether realm. You're fighting in the ruined city. Arden doesn't turn into a five-story tall gigantic monster. He's just, he's Arden. There's no one-winged angel. I mean, granted, he's flying, but he's still basically just Arden. And he's not throwing super attacks at you either. He's using the same armager weapons you have access to throughout the fight. Mm -hmm. After that point, Noctis goes back up to the throne and... The ghost of his father, because all the ghosts of the kings of past Lucis are the weapons that he's been collecting through the game. And he says, basically, he says, Dad, I'm ready. I know what I have to do. It's my responsibility. Trust me to do this. And the ghosts slay him. And in doing so, unleashes his power as a king. That's when he ends up in this nether realm where Arden's spirit is. 
and that's more akin to the Cloud versus Sephiroth one-on-one. Yeah, and this was just all done in CGI. Yeah, it's very similar to the very, very, very end of Lightning Returns, where CGI lightning smites God in space. (laughs) That's how every Final Fantasy game ends. You smite God in space. Noctis, with the help of the spirits of Lunafreya and his father and the memory of his bros, takes down Arden, and Arden dissipates, and that's the end of the game. That's how the actual plot line ends. And then the credits roll, and you see scenes of the sun rising over the landscape. And these are very powerful sequences, because you have such a strong connection with these places, these lakes and forests. During the actual credits, it sh- so during the game, you can take pictures. That's like Prompto's big skill. And during the credit sequence, it just shows you your pictures. Like, it's literally the pictures you took during the game. On the way up to find Arden in the elevator this might be a misstep on the storyteller's part and i'll explain why but noctis is like hey prompt let me see your photo album and you get to pick one photo from your album that noctis takes with him when he goes on alone to face arden and then at the very end of the game in the after credits you get this view of the Lucy's throne room kind of coming back to life it's implied to be an afterlife scene where noctis is sitting on his throne and luna freya is sitting next to him and he's like hey check out this picture Every single 15 player that I know picks the dumbest picture out of their album. Oh, see, I didn't because I am a big, a big softy. I took okay. the picture that the game makes you take where you're getting on the boat, where it's you and your bros and Sid and Sydney and Core, where it's the whole group. I am that super softy guy. You probably picked a picture of like Gladio's like, butt. There's no, there's no dialogue in this scene. It's playing the traditional Final Fantasy prelude. Which, right there, that mm-hmm. gets me. and that, That's enough to kill Ugh. me. But Noctis, he like, takes his picture and he wordlessly kind of nudges Luna. And he's like, hey, check this out. And she looks at him, gives him his smile. The camera zooms in on the picture. And it's Gladio's ass. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was my first experience with this ending scene. I think that we just pinned down in the most pure form the difference between you and me as video game players. <laughs> I took my time listening to the dialogue because as you're flipping through, like they say like, oh, I remember that. That's a good one. Hey, look, it's all of us together. Like it has all these moments, which kind of doesn't make sense because I spent like five minutes looking through a photo album where I'm like standing outside of the final boss battle, but whatever. (laughs) So I pick like the picture of you and your bros and the bulk of the NPCs in the game. And meanwhile, Brickard's like, but. Gladio's got a great butt. All right. I'm just one of the best butts in gaming. The after credit scene, it shows the bros, it's their last night camping just outside of Insomnia. It's a flashback. And the implication is Noctis has just explained to them that, like, what's going to happen. He's really choked up and he has a hard time explaining what his friends mean to him. And then the last line of the game is, you guys are the best. Oh, uh, but it's it's given with such, so much emotion. He's like, you guys are... And you could tell he's searching for the word. Like, you think he's going to say, my brothers, you know, my family, I love you guys. He just says, you guys are the best. best. And you're just like, oh, God, it kills me. And that's how the game ends. So and that took a long time to summarize, but I don't think it's a very complicated plot. No. Compared to other Final Fantasy games. It really isn't. Not compared to um, 13, for God's sakes. Oh my God. Here's one of the things that I really enjoy about 15's plot is 
I don't know if there's a term for this. You're the litner here. Maybe you can take me to school. But 15 is a chosen hero story. There is a chosen one. The chosen one has a job to do. And those stories go typically in one of two ways. One, they're just really tired and rote because that's every story. The other way it can go is kind of to be subversive with it. Like, you're the chosen one, but we're going to play it as like a gag or a joke or whatever. 15 plays the chosen one hero very straight, but it does it in a way that makes it feel very refreshing, I thought. It's funny that you say it's refreshing because it's actually of classic literary technique, but it's classic because when you do it well, it's really good literature, which is it's the hero's journey. And you have to have that period of reluctance to make it work when they accept the role of being the hero. And I think that's why 15 works. It's not like I'm the hero, booyah. And it's not like, I'm the hero. Well, of course I'm the hero. It's, I'm not the hero. You can tell the whole time Noctis just wants to be a guy. He just wants to be one of the bros. Let's talk about Yuna a little bit more. Okay. Yuna's the chosen one in Final Fantasy X. Only a summoner can do what she needs to do. And it's heavily implied that people think Yuna is the chosen one because her father was before her. She's been training for it her whole life. This is a major, major element of the plot. But it doesn't work for me because you go into battle and Yuna's like, yeah, here, I can do this thing with my summoned monsters. But then Lulu's standing there and she's like, oh, well, I can just make explosions. <laughs> and Tidus and Waka are like, oh, we can breathe underwater and jump 80 stories. Like every character has superhuman things they can do. And Yuna's is just a different type of superhuman thing that she can do. Right. It just happens to be plot critical. <laughs> In 15, every superhuman thing your bros can do they can only do because of Noctis. Yeah, the whole summoning weapons from thin air, which is, it's great because it's not only a good plot thing, but it's such a good mechanical thing. I love that. It's such a good, like, how do we make the weapons show up? I don't know, they just appear. What if they do that because of royal magic? Sure. So that's one of the magic things that Noctis can do. And then warp striking is another one. Which only he can do. Only Noctis can fill magical flasks with elemancy, which he can then give to his companions if he wants. And then if you read the descriptions on even the healing items, they only create this magical healing because of him, apparently. So it is very literal that Noctis is the chosen one. Yeah. This isn't just some old guy had a prophecy 500 years ago. This is a law of nature in this world. The blood has power and Noctis is the one with the blood. So when you have this element of reluctance, like maybe he doesn't want to be a hero, he's not sure if he can, that all doesn't matter because in the end, he has to be the hero. Right. And if he's not, there's no heroism. If he doesn't accept his role, then the world is screwed. And that's part of why you have that 10-year gap, too, because you have to have the world suffer in the absence of the king. I kind of wish we had spent a little bit more time there. I don't know that I needed like access to the full map, though, talking about things that are cut, apparently that's what the multiplayer expansion is, the 10-year time gap, which I haven't touched and I probably no, never will. Either. I've got no interest in the multiplayer stuff. Though apparently you create a little avatar, which I guess is just a hunter, and you can run into the other bros to see what they're up to, but no whatever. It, it's very nostalgic in a way, because you get to this, the world destroyed, you're like, I played a Final Fantasy game that did this, and then gave me that world to explore, mm -hmm. called the World of Ruin, and as I'm thinking this, the tagline on the screen, the chapter heading comes up, and it's called <laughs> The World of Ruin, and I'm like, oh man. Yeah, strap in, guys. You can't actually go out and explore it. That was disappointed at first. 
with the Windows edition, I think adding Insomnia as essentially another world map is enough. Insomnia, the world map of Insomnia is pretty impressive on the Windows version. I mean, it was like having a massive final dungeon, but they kept the elements of being able to do basically side questing. Just giving you one last chance to go get some levels and to get some items to strengthen you up a little bit. It worked for me a lot. Insomnia was enough World of Ruin gameplay that I was satisfied with it my second time through the game. I really liked the design of Insomnia where you get the feeling of this being a bustling modern city. I mean, your save points are all in subway terminals, which is something you don't see anywhere else in the world. Uh, you see ruins of like buses and just these huge buildings. Like it's effectively New York City or I guess Tokyo perhaps. I guess that's like our segue into just the setting of the world. The world that you get to explore is kind of like a contemporary rural America. A little bit. I mean, it's definitely fantasy America. It's kind of like the Midwest. It's the Midwest, but there's chocobo crossing signs. <laughs> so you don't actually get to go to many big cities. Insomnia is not a city. It's a dungeon at the end of the game. And you do get to go to uh, Lestellum. Lestellum's weird because Lestellum is definitely like Havana. It has this like weird sort of Latino feeling to it. And you don't get to see a lot of it, but you get to go down some of the, like the alleyways and see some of the shops and stuff that are there. You don't get to explore all of it, it feels like. You get to explore enough of it that you get a sense of it being like a different cultural entity than most of the surrounding rural landscape. So I really liked Lestellum, and there's, you spend a lot of time there because it's a quest hub and there's a lot of story there. And then you have, like, a lot of the places are just kind of like truck stops mm -hmm. almost. You know, you spend a lot of time in, like, diners. And I love the way that they capture the road trip feel. There's that diner that is effectively Final Fantasy XV Waffle House <laughs> that you, you keep stopping at. They got that crappy uh, pinball game on the side. I think I played that game, like, once and was like, eh, I'm out. Yeah, me too. But the setting of the game, I enjoyed quite a lot because they made every place you go feel very different from every other place that you went. When you got to Altitia, it wasn't just the next town. It was a new culture. It was a new landscape. It was a new type of people and new type of architecture. It was very different from what you'd been doing up until that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they did a really good job showing the difference between even the different regions in Lucius. And there's a lot of sort of desert landscape, but then you get into some more forested areas. There's a whole mountainous area. It's very, you know, kind of ABC's JRPG making, but at the same time, it has that sort of Americana feel to it. And then you go to this very Venice-feeling city, and then you get on the train to... I mean, it feels a lot like the Empire from Final Fantasy VI, to bring it back around to that parallel. It's industrial, it's metal, it's dirty. It's also infested with demons, so, you know, it has that going for it. By the time you actually get to Gralia, the place has been overrun by demons, and the Emperor himself has been transformed into one of these demons. Like, the Empire is done. You spend half the game thinking, oh my god, demons come out at night. And then you find out it's actually basically a virus. It's the Star Scourge. 
Yeah, and the Empire has unwittingly unleashed that on themselves through... Uh, it feels very um, 28 Days Later to me in a lot of ways. It's like they're experimenting with it, and then it just breaks out. And you hear all this stuff on the radio where they've got like looping emergency broadcasts, which are really well done. And then eventually the radio just goes completely silent, and it's really creepy. We were talking about Noctis's blood having a bond to the crystal and being the source of magic. And there are two instances in the game where some other character tries to wield that source of magic and pays for it dearly. Mm -hmm. The magic is channeled through the Ring of the Lucii, which is the Lucis family ring. And it's implied that Niflheim wanted to find this ring when they sacked Insomnia. And actually, if you watch the terrible tie-in movie, Kingsglaive, that's what the movie is about. Regis giving... Luna Freya this ring so that she can pass it on to Noctis. Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> what ends up happening, though, is Luna gets, I guess, kind of half sort of kidnapped by her brother Ravis and taken to Altitia. And Ravis ends up with the ring and Ravis tries to put it on. First of all, Ravis, every time he walks on screen, I can only see the DS version of Cecil. Am I alone in that? No, you know what's funny? I played the DLC on a stream, and one of the dudes on there kept calling him Dark Cecil, <laughs> which I hadn't thought of beforehand, but I was like, oh, that's he, really he good, actually. Very, looks very similar to Cecil from Final Fantasy IV. His role in the plot is basically Tenebrae was taken by the Empire a long time ago, and Ravis, being one of the sons of Tenebrae, kind of drank the Imperial Kool-Aid, got in good with the Emperor. And at the time of the game, he's one of the highest military leaders in their army. He doesn't think Noctis has what it takes, not good enough for his little sister, etc. He tries to put on this ring and it destroys his arm. So when you actually meet Ravis in the game, he has a new Magitek metallic arm. Okay, timeout. Do we get that in the base game? Or is that only revealed in the, in the silly DLC? Because I remember thinking when I played it in the DLC and they show that scene, I remember thinking that was the first time I saw it. I remember thinking in the base game, they keep talking about his metal arm, but no one's really sure why he's got one. I think you're right. I think they only show that in the stupid well, DLC. Okay, they only show it explicitly in the DLC. But if you think about Ravis's attitude towards Noctis and you know that he has the ring and that's how you eventually find the ring. Eventually, of course, Ravis also turns into a demon and he's a boss fight and it's it's a whole thing. The other person who attempts to control the power of Lucis is Ignis in his DLC chapter. Right. In the base game, after everything goes down in Altitia, the next scene is Ignis. So I, I was wounded during the fight and I've lost my eyesight. Now I'm blind. But he doesn't ever explain what the wound was or what happened. But in his DLC, you do get a big scene with Ravis as well in Ignis's DLC, where Ravis is kind of talking down to Ignis and explaining, Noctis doesn't have what it takes, he cannot be the king, he can't control this power. Ignis attempts to control the power of Lucis in order to protect Noctis, and the gods grant him the power just long enough to act as Noctis's shield to preserve his life, but then take his eyesight as the cost of doing that. And he gets this, like, bad boy windswept haircut that he can equip afterwards. I, okay. So I had a lot of issues with that because unlike Gladio disappearing and Prompto's mysterious barcode, I was actually totally fine with Ignis's fate the way that was presented in the main game. 
the idea that he got wounded off screen protecting Noctis added to Noctis's guilt and added to the entire rest of the game in a really great way. I liked Ignis's DLC plot-wise. I hated all of them mechanically. Plot-wise, I liked Ignis's DLC, but at the same time, I felt it was really unnecessary. It wasn't something that needed to be explained. No, I mean, honest to God, I just assumed he got caught in an explosion. Like, there were giant Magitek airships blowing up half the city, and then Leviathan drowned everyone. It just looked like he caught a blast of shrapnel. Both of those in the main game, they, they're things that do kind of happen off screen. They happen, but the game never draws strong attention to them. But then when Noctis takes the ring for himself in Gralia, he takes to the power and he's able to use it and able to wield it. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways that they really earn it is in the chapters where the lads were sad, there's a big point of contention where you see Noctis is just holding the ring in his hand in the palm of his hand, not wearing it. And Gladio is basically like, are you going to wear that thing? And that's a big part of the reason why him and Gladio have a falling out for a while there is because Noctis is not saying it, but he's clearly scared to put the ring on. Yeah, through the whole train ride, he doesn't put the ring on mm -mm. and he gets separated from the bros. And this is an, another Arden manipulation. Is Arden is doing some weird electromagnetic thing in Gralia that prevents... Noctis's warp magic. He can't warp strike. He can't pull his weapons out of hammer space. He's unarmed. He's alone. He has nothing but this ring. Because Arden knows he, I need him to put on that ring so the crystal can call to him, so he can be connected with the crystal. And it's more powerful than anything you can do in the game. It gives it the standard Final Fantasy spell names. I think there's Drain, uh, Holy, Ultima is one of them, and Death. Mm-hmm. It's essentially like, yeah, you point the ring at a monster, you hold the button down for a second, and the monster pops like a soap bubble. <laughs> <laughs> yep, pretty much. And then the magic button where if you hold it down, you just do a nuke attack that just wipes up basically everything on the screen, but it drains all your magic. For some reason, it's translated as Alterna in this game, but it's effectively Ultima. It's Ultima. The, the fun thing about the uh, Alterna spell is bosses aren't immune to it. Oh, no. So... When you fight Ravis in Gralia, you can just cast Ultima over and over until it works, and it's a one-hit kill. Oh, wow. I don't think I ever tried using that on him. I think I just beat him the stupid way. <laughs> um, I definitely used it when you're walking through and they keep spawning like a red giant or something. I definitely popped it on that thing a couple of times. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. But yeah, no, the ring is, like you said, I think that's a good term, and you've used it a couple times, like they earn it. They earn the ring's impact. They earn Noctis's sacrifice actually mattering. This game really puts in the work, and it's kind of super impressive that they did that, considering how uh, half-baked at times Final Fantasy plots are. <laughs> Sometimes they're quarter-baked. I do have to wonder, though, because we're, we're both big fans of this series. Mm -hmm. is final fantasy 15 really something special or did it just connect with us because we're already in uh, a little of column a and a little column b <laughs> i think that there is something special about final fantasy 15 i think that there's a lot of good work that it puts in that being said there's definitely some parts of the plot that got hacked i mean especially if you played it in the original launch. But at the same time, I do think that if you stick with it, I think that the 
the connection that you make with these characters is very strong. And I didn't even get, I wanted to touch on this. I guess maybe I didn't camp enough. <laughs> I remember watching your streams and there were several times where you'd camp and then you'd wake up the next morning and like Gladio would be like, Hey man, I want to go do this thing. And you'd go do a thing one-on-one with Gladio. Yeah. There were little dates with the bros. I don't know how I managed to miss like a lot of that. They're kind of the Final Fantasy version of the memory sequences you can find in Breath of the Wilds. Okay, I could see that. It's weird though, because like I knew these existed, but I don't know what the conditions are for getting them. I swear I had to have stayed at every camp at least once. I don't think it's just stay at the camp. I think it has to be stay at the camp and X, you know? Uh, I'm not sure. I have the strategy guide. I could crack it open and look for sure, but it's all the way on the side of the room. And it's a heavy book. This is like a 400 page tome. That's outdated now because it's for the launch version of the game. They need to have a place where you can go and print off like 40 pages of PDFs for like the addendums (laughs) and just staple it to the back of it. But I also totally abused the extra experience going to hotels. Oh, (laughs) like a lot. In fact, when I played the game the second time, I never camped anywhere because I wanted to bank all my experience and turn it in at Galvin Key. What I did a lot of the time is I would go bank my experience at the uh, hotels and then I'd go do a mission and I'd find the campsite near the mission and camp and need a meal so I could get the stat bonus and then I'd go do the thing. But I would often camp with no experience banked. (laughs) I was kind of manipulative about it. (laughs) The other thing that I did in this game that you haven't mentioned, so I'm not sure if you've seen it or not, but have you gone back to Lucis to do some of the end game hunts that open up? Specifically, have you seen the Adamantois event? I have seen the Adamantois event because I actually time traveled. Um, I did try to fight it. I ran like hell from it. I mean, this is a Final Fantasy staple. It's a giant turtle you fight. Right. And in Final Fantasy 13, there's this holy crap moment when you get down to Grand Pulse and you see a monster bigger than any monster you've ever fought in any RPG you've ever played. It's gargantuan. It's effectively a brontosaurus. That's what they made it look like. (laughs) In Final Fantasy XIII, this thing is so big that when it steps on the ground, it causes an earthquake and does 4,000 damage to everybody. So the way it works in XV is you go to the truck stop where you get your hunt, so you gotta go kill this monster. You pick up the fight for the Adamantois, and you're thinking, oh, okay, whatever, I'll go oh. kill a turtle. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me correct you here. The way it works is they say, hey, man, there's been a lot of earthquakes at this mountain. <laughs> you should go investigate this mountain. This is a mountain you've been driving past the entire game. It's within eyeshot of this truck stop, and it's really far away, and there's nothing out there. Right. I think there may be, like, a mission that you can go poke around at it, but that's about it. But yeah, Sydney calls up, and she's like, hey, go check out the mountain. When you drive out there, the mountain stands up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I did see that. (laughs) I've... I I pooped myself. I might have... (laughs) The game tells you to run. It puts up a timer and says, escape. Right. (laughs) And did you escape from it? And then you can go to a truck stop afterwards and it's like, here's a level 99 hunt. And I said, no, thank you. So I killed that thing. Really? It's it's extremely easy. It's mind numbing because it takes hours. Oh, is it? Okay. 
Final Fantasy twelve had some fights like that where you just had to basically whack at something for two hours. In Final Fantasy twelve, these are puzzle bosses. Mm-hmm. This is okay. You have to learn the boss's strengths and weaknesses, and then build a set of gambits that can take it on. Adamantoise is also a puzzle boss because it has strengths and weaknesses. There's lots of warp points around, so you have effectively infinite mana. And you also have effectively infinite health because you can buy as many potions and elixirs as you want. The problem comes trying to damage this goddamn thing. Because it's <laughs> made up of, there's, there's separate targets for its legs and its body and its head. What I've determined, though, is attacking its eyeball always did max damage. I got the best sword that I could get. I put on, like, a quadruple strength food at the campground. <laughs> and I was warp striking this thing's eyeball. And I learned... That I could do this until I was out of MP, and then just before I was went into stasis and falling to the ground, I could warp strike somewhere else, get my MP refill, and then go back to the eyeball. <laughs> and I was digging at this dude's eyeball for it had to have been a couple of hours. Five point two million hit points. Jeez us. And I took it down nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine damage at a time. Warp striking its eyeball. There's got to be a limit break ability somewhere that you hadn't unlocked because... Oh, there was. There there absolutely was. I didn't finish up my skill trees or anything, but... That's another small nitpick I have with the game. I'm not a fan of skill trees where you will not, over the course of normal play, see the end of the skill trees. I didn't feel like I was making informed decisions because I didn't feel like I was making hard choices. I was just like, I'm never going to see any of these. Like when I play Ori in the Blind Forest, without trying really hard, I, if not maxed out the skill tree, at least reached the end of one or two of the branches. The skill trees in this one are like, here's a bunch of little things you can get, and then here's a bunch of things you can get for like 300 AP, which... I never banked 300 AP in the entire game. Right. The way that the skill trees are structured, there's a little glom of really cheap skills that kind of give you your baseline abilities, and then a lot of really expensive ones that you're not supposed to unlock unless you do hours and hours of hunting in the post-game. In post-game, at one point, I finally went through, because Ignis has all this, like, elemental crap in his DLC, and I'm like, that's weird. And I finally went and saw, oh, I guess I can unlock some elemental stuff in his skill tree if I go poking around in it, but I just never got to it. It's another example of, there's a couple things in the skill tree that you might just pick to augment your playstyle that you like, and then ignore the rest. Yeah, I think I got all of the get more AP for doing normal stuff skill trees. I don't know what it costs, 20 or 30 points or whatever. I wonder, did I ever gain back those 20 or 30 points driving around? Oh, I think I did, actually. Because, (laughs) I mean, once I got the monster truck, I did a lot of stupid just driving around on my own. (laughs) So let's talk about the monster truck and the boat. Because there's a lot of stuff that they just tacked onto this game. The first thing you get is your flying car. When you warp back to Lucis, you go back in time or whatever, and Sydney's like, hey, here's the plans for a flying car, and now you have a flying car. I'm like, okay. Right. Which, I mean, I don't know about you, but the first thing I did was flew it into a mountain. Yeah, that's exactly the first thing I did with it. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it tells you, like, oh, if you mess up landing, it's game over. I'm like, uh-huh. Because <laughs> you can't, it's not like an airship in Final Fantasy where you just land. You actually have to line up with a road and come in like an airstrip. That's the only way to get to the Pityos Ruins, though. There is at least an in-game reason to have the flying car. I don't understand why it gives you the boat and the monster truck. The monster truck's kind of fun just because then you don't have to fool with chocobos anymore. Which, don't get me wrong, I love the chocobos in that game. I spent a lot of time on chocobos. 
But once you unlock the monster truck, you can just say, eh, I'm just going to drive over here now. <laughs> Which is fun. I think the Windows version, they just unlock it at a certain point. I don't know what the prerequisite was for it. It was just like, all of a sudden, I had a monster truck. Yeah, they just handed it to you. Is that really something you did, though? Like, I, I want to go from point A to point B, and I don't want to take the road, so I get in the monster truck and drive there? I did it for hunts. This game has a fast travel system. Right. I would fast travel to the nearest town, and then I'd hop in the monster truck, hit it on manual, and drive to the hunt. Oh, okay. I guess I can see it. And also, you can ram into things with it. So, there's a hunt that you can do to get um, one of the long neck thingies. I forget what they call them. Cattle bleepus? Yeah, one of those. So there's a hunt that I did several times. It spawns a kettle bleepus because you need one of the rare drops off of it for another event. I don't understand. This, this is just a weird video game thing. I've never understood why there's rare drops off of creatures like that. Like you kill a giant monster and all you get is a toenail. <laughs> but do you have a chance of getting a steak? I'm like, no, I'm carving that mother up. <laughs> But anyway, I went back and forth doing that quest for a while where I would go get the quest and then I'd drive, you know, the, the half a mile to the Catablepus at spawn and ram into it <laughs> for a few hundred damage and then hop out and then kill it and then it would fall onto my car, which was always funny. And then I'd hop into the car and wait for it to despawn while it was like wrapped up around my car. <laughs> Just enjoying the weird physics of the game. Because the very first thing I did with the monster truck was got it stuck between two trees. Yeah, I mean, you. It, look, don't get me wrong. I had enormous amounts of fun with the monster truck. I spent a few hours just seeing what trouble I could get into out there. But it feels like a very tacked on feature. Like somebody just had an idea and nobody told him he couldn't do it. I got super mad at it because I kept trying to cross this river and it was a shallow river. Like it was a trout stream. And I was like, I need to get over there. And so every time I touched the water, I guess the game was just programmed water equals reset. So every time I touched the water, like with a tire, Gladio would be like, where do you think you're going? And it would reset me on the wrong side of the stupid stream. So then I have to like get a running start and try to jump it. Final Fantasy XV does not have a world that is conducive to exploring in vehicles like this. It's very clear. <laughs> Even in the flying car, there are places you're not allowed to fly. There's a big ravine that splits half of the map, and you're not allowed to fly over it. If you get near it, it just turns you around. It doesn't let you fly over it. Really? I barely touched the flying car. Like, I saw that I got it, I crashed it, and that was about it. But the first thing I did try to do was fly it into the big meteor hole and they get to a certain point where it just sort of automatically makes you fly back up. And I'm like, well, that's boring. I do want to say the DLC is interesting to me because I do feel like some of the plot stuff was cut or altered for the DLC. And there's a lot about the episodes that I love the characterizations of. I love Ignis in his episode, like just who Ignis is. And I had a moment where I was playing it on stream and I was like, oh my God, he is David Bowie. I just now got that he looks like David Bowie. And then his eyes explode. And the first second I was like, oh my God, he looks like Ziggy Stardust. But then I actually said out loud, he looks like Iggy Stardust. And then my mind went, oh my God. <laughs> he had little moments. I had a moment. I had a very personal moment. And then like Prompto's episode, it explained all the stuff that the plot just sort of skimmed over in the main game. Gladio's was kind of dumb. Gladio's could have totally just been like, let's go do this side dungeon thing with Gladio. Like I said, I think they did made a decision at some point where they had these other beats and they said, we don't want to take the narration away from Noctis. The thing that really stuck out to me was Ignis's has 
this alternate timeline. And the main thing of Ignis is it explains what happened to his eyes, which is to save uh, Noctis's life. He puts on the ring. His eyes explode into fire. He attacks Arden, buys him enough time, yada, yada, yada. But then it gives you this moment where you can choose to play along with Arden. And then Arden suddenly like welcomes you to the Empire. But then the way that plays out is weird because you put on the ring much later in the scenario and because you're the crystal, it grants you for some reason its full power. And in this alternate timeline, Noctis lives. I don't know if I love or hate that. I kind of hate that they did that. Like it kind of cheapens the sacrifice to just say, oh, no, Ignis could have changed it. I didn't play that alternate ending. I had no idea that existed. Oh, you should look at it on YouTube or something. Yeah, like basically there's a point where Arden says you can join me or you can watch him die. And that's when Ignis slips on the ring. But then if you beat the game and then go back to that chapter, you play along and you palm the ring. He doesn't know you have the ring and you and he invites you to the Empire, basically just to rub your nose in it. <laughs> and then you put on the ring, but you're near the crystal and you basically say, I want to sacrifice myself. And Ignis becomes what Noctis does in an end game. But then Noctis shows up and saves your life. And then so somehow, somehow everyone survives. That breaks a lot of rules. <laughs> it breaks a ton of rules. <laughs> That's somebody's fan fiction that got put into the game. My thoughts on the DLC. First of all, I liked 15's version of Gilgamesh. That might be the only thing I liked about Gladio's chapter. I thought he was interesting. I just was like, this isn't Gilgamesh. Where's the rest of his arms? Where's the snark? He was just this guy. It's a character named Gilgamesh, but Gilgamesh in the greater Final Fantasy mythos is kind of a unique entity because it's heavily implied it's always the same guy traveling between these worlds, but sometimes it's not. Final Fantasy IX's Gilgamesh and Final Fantasy XV's Gilgamesh are clearly different characters named Gilgamesh. Ignis is the only character that I think I would switch to play as in the main game. I actually took his gameplay pretty well. I like the grappling hook a lot. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> Spider-Man Ignis was really dumb, but I had fun with it. Prompto's chapter I abhorred because it's a shooter and not my thing. But it has my favorite story moment in the Broisodes because Prompto's been thrown off the train in this icy wasteland. And he's trying to rendezvous with his friends in Gralia, where he knows they're all going. And he gets lost in the waste. He's having a crisis of fate. He's learned he's a vat baby <laughs> from Lab 99. And he runs into Aranea. God, we, could, <laughs> we haven't talked about Aranea at all. She's a great character. She's a dragoon. She's, got this she's a mercenary, basically. With a heart of gold. Like, she's a good guy. She is, but you fight her at one point because she's working for the Empire. Did you ever have Aranea come down and help you fight? Just randomly? If you're in a battle for a long time, sometimes a dropship will show up and Aranea jumps down and helps you. No! That could happen? And what's funny is if you leave the battle, like if you don't finish the fight, she's like, if you're taking off, so am I. And she hops back up on the dropship and flies off. That's amazing. No, that never happened to me. I have a love-hate relationship with emergent gameplay because I love that you can have a unique experiences with a game like that, but I kind of hate that I missed that. You didn't get I don't to know see how. It. But I never saw that. No. Pronto is a character. Through the whole game, people kind of treat him with kid gloves because he's real sensitive. He doesn't feel like he fits in with all the guys. He's out in this wasteland now, and the only person he has to talk to is he hooks up with Aranea. And Aranea is basically like, yep, time to stop crying, chump. 
I joke that Aaron Air like was channeling lightning. She all but punched him like snow at one point. It was it was great. Yeah, she's never like mean to him. She's never unfriendly. She's just a little callous. She's like, you know what? I'll help you out if you and I are going the same way. But if you're gonna hook up back with your guys, you've got to. It's it's time for you to grow up. I really enjoyed that from a plot standpoint. It's it's really what Prompto needed at that point in his story. Yeah, it was a point where Prompto was really low and he was a guy he was the jokester the entire game he kind of had the kid brother effect like you said they kind of treat him with kid gloves and he kind of does have this low self-esteem that he's hiding through jokes Mm -hmm. and at this point when he's all alone he's just like i don't even know if they'd want to be with me anymore she's like shut up (laughs) she's basically yeah you know what if you think you're worthless you probably are that dlc though drove me crazy because they actually give you a map and i'm like oh they give you a map to explore and it's like here's a side quest i'm like go to the side quest awesome and i go to the side quest and it's like a level 99 magitech and i'm like are you out of your mind (laughs) and i come to find out all you get for beating these side quest things is you can level up the jet ski that you can only use in a portion of that dlc it's all pointless only one more topic because i mentioned i didn't think i was going to enjoy final fantasy 15's plot you're never sure when you go into a new final fantasy game if it's one of the good ones and so you have this kind of melodramatic scene with Noctis and his dad, and then the bro's car breaks down and they have some banter. It is a Japanese game that's been localized, so the dialogue is always just kind of off kilter. And then it starts playing Stand By Me, and I lost it, because I'm like, come on, there's no way you can open the game with Stand By Me. Too much too soon. That was my first impression of it. My thing is, I didn't come into the game completely cold. I did watch quite a bit of your streams early on because I wasn't sure if this was a game I was going to want to play Mm -hmm. because of the tortured history of it and also literally just not having something I could play it on for a long time. So I watched that opening with you. But I remember, again, I'm a big (laughs) softy. I remember that song coming on and kind of knowing just from the promotional works that this game was really about these four guys and it was really this bro trip and also having a soft spot on my heart for the Stephen King book slash movie Stand By Me. And when that song hit, I was kind of on board. Okay. I'm not going to lie. Because they played the song again in the epilogue. Well, I mean, the epilogue I wanted to break down. Like, when they played the full version of the song at the end, while showing all of the pictures, and me knowing, like, yep, this is it, we're all dead. And then when I went back and replayed the game, and at the start of the game, knowing what's coming, it hit me again. Like, we've been saying the game had to earn it, and I think it does earn that song, but there was always the chance that... It wasn't going to earn anything, and the song was just there to kind of cheaply get you into the experience. And I'm glad that wasn't the case. It could have really easily gone the route of Final Fantasy XIII 2's ending, which is... (laughs) (laughs) Dude, we're going to need another 90 minutes if we're going to talk about XIII 2's ending. XIII 2's ending is maybe not the way that they intended it to be, but... It is my favorite ending of a video game. It's pretty fantastic. (laughs) And everybody listening should go YouTube that ending now. 